Hey, it's Aaron, and this is 31 Nights of Scary Shit. Hey, friends, back again. How are you doing on this fine Friday, October 7th? I, for one, am really looking forward to the day, another beautiful fall day here in Massachusetts. Going to do a little exploring today. So I hope that your Friday is going to be full of fun and your weekend too. All right, so change in pace a little bit today. So the first three October episodes, I focused on spooky places. And in my research, I came across uh, a really kind of disturbing story um, of a suspected serial killer that was in the area of New Bedford, Massachusetts between um, March of 1988 and April of 1989. And the case did not get a whole lot of attention. It did not get national attention, probably because it was not near, probably not in a big city is most likely probably one of the reasons. But um, nonetheless, quite a disturbing story and sad story, too, because the there was no one ever arrested and, and convicted of, of these murders. So going to change the pace up a little bit today. Um, but before I do that, if you have been listening since the beginning of podcasts, which was October of 2020, thank you for sticking with us. So happy to be here with you and putting out spooky content. If you are new to listening, uh, uh, we're glad that you've found the podcast. So, um, if you like what you hear, go ahead and like us on Facebook, go ahead and Follow us on Instagram, 31 Nights of Scary Shit, or send us an email at 31 Nights of Scary Shit at gmail.com. Send us your ideas if you think that there are cool topics that we could cover. Again, it doesn't have to be spooky related. It could be a disappearance. It could be a potential UFO sighting. So anything that you think might be interesting and might fit our vibe here. Uh, also, if you have a story you want to share, doesn't even have to involve you. It could be a friend. It could be a perfect stranger. So something weird or scary that happened, even if it's something funny, you know, that's related to the scary, we'd love to hear it. We'd love to be able to have enough content to do an episode of listener stories. Now the plugging out of the way. And we all know that that is not my strong suit. I'm not good with a segue. And also, again, if you're noticing that the sound quality is not quite what it used to be, I apologize. Different location, different acoustics, lots of background noise, a microphone that is not that great, and also a recording device that is kind of terrible for audio. So hopefully I get this figured out uh, eventually, but for now, this is what you got. So I appreciate if you are listening, if you can bear to listen, I'm still going to keep putting the content out, even, even, even if I think no one's listening. I'm going to keep doing it because I love October and I got to celebrate it. All right, into the content of our episode for today. So between March of 1988 and April of 1989, 11 women disappeared from the New Bedford, Massachusetts area. New Bedford is a busy seaport town with working class families, many in the fishing industry. They tend to grow up around the area and also stay. In the 1980s, there was a rampant drug problem in the area. So there were 11 women 
who uh, went missing during this time. Nine of the 11 of the, of the women's bodies were recovered and identified, while two of the women's remains were never identified. The victims were known sex workers and were addicted to drugs. The case did not get national attention like many other serial murder cases. It's clear the killer was preying on vulnerable women. Now, I also want to point out that depending on the source, it seems that not all of these women were um, known in the streets as sex workers, but there was some sort of a connection. Okay. Um, so I don't want to unfairly label, um, but it, d- it depended on the source that I was looking at. So it's, it's up, to, it's up for debate, you know, whether or not they were actually known on the streets, every single one of them as a sex worker. Uh, a professor who covered the case as a journalist named Maureen Boyle wrote a book about the cases called Shallow Graves, and I believe that came out in 2017. So that kind of sparked some renewed interest in the case. There were suspects identified, but no one was ever charged with the murders. Bodies were dumped near and along the I-195 and Route 140, um, Route 140 in Freetown, Massachusetts, which I referenced in episode 130 when I spoke about the spooky happenings near Freetown State Park. The first known victim was Deborah Medeiros, and she was discovered in July 1988 by a motorist near northbound Route 140 in Freetown. Nancy Lee Paiva, a mother of two, was reported missing by her boyfriend and was found a few weeks later near the I- <clears throat> near I-195. Meanwhile, other women had been reported missing or were turning up dead. 26-year-old mother, Mary Rose Santos, was found along Route 88 in Westport. Sandra Botello, left home on August 11, 1988 and disappeared, was found along I-195 in Marion by a state highway crew. 25-year-old Dawn Mendez went missing on September 4th. Uh, she... <clears throat> okay, let me back up here a second. Yep, that's a different victim. 28-year-old Cape Cod woman, Rochelle... Delparala was found in a gravel pit about two miles from I-195. 25-year-old Deborah Lynn McConnell and a new Bedford teen named Christina Montero. 35-year-old Deborah Greenlaw DeMello was found dead after walking away from a work release program in Rhode Island when she was not granted parole. And Robin Rhodes was found along Route 140 by a search dog in March of 1989. Christina Montero and Marilyn Roberts, age 34, have never been found, but it is assumed that they were victims of the New Bedford killer. New Bedford is an area heavily populated by Portuguese immigrants and their descendants. Many of the women came from that tight-knit community. The first to develop a theory about who the killer was was New Bedford detective John Dextrader. He noticed the similarity in the women's backgrounds and convinced higher-ups to establish a a task force months after the first body was found. One of the suspects was a local lawyer named Kenneth Ponte, who was connected to quite a few of the victims. Now, in my opinion, this guy looks pretty good. Um, When I get into why he was of interest, you might think the same thing. Ponte had represented Mary Rose Santos, worked with Nancy Paiva, allegedly dated Robin Rhodes, and had allegedly been seen with Rochelle Dapparella and Don Mendez. Ponte had been a heroin addict before he studied law, passed the bar, and earned a deputy sheriff position, giving him a badge and a gun. Hmm. He thinks that sounds like the perfect recipe to abuse power and attack vulnerable women. 
the word on the street was that Ponty was pretty much a weirdo, um, very paranoid. He would bring sex workers to his house, bolt the doors and not allow them to leave. Well, that sounds like kidnapping. While it isn't clear if he became violent, he was described as really strange. Rumors circulated that Ponty had watched a pornographic video in which a woman being strangled looked dead. Okay, so, you know, he sounds like like he, at the very least, you know, a, kind of a dangerous guy. Uh, none of the girls ever pressed any charges against him. He gave the girls drugs, but seemed uninterested in sex. Seems a bit odd since he was bringing sex workers to his house. Ponty moved to Florida months after the discovery of the first victims. Again, seems kind of suspicious. He was running his mouth down in Florida about being innocent before he was even charged with anything. So that doesn't really sound like an innocent person. Why are you, you know, why are you proclaiming innocence of something you have not yet been accused of? He was eventually charged in the death of Dabarella. But that case was dropped due to no direct evidence linking Ponty to the killing. Dopperella was supposed to be testifying in a case against Ponty because he pulled a gun on a man. Okay, so again, you know, that, that doesn't look good. Ponty died at age 60 in 2010, which left many unanswered questions. So was he the person? Don't know. Tony DeGrazia was another New Bedford man who sex workers feared. So this guy was known for being violent, and he had a very distinctive feature, a flattened nose. Girls on the street knew to stay away from the, the quote, guy who looked like a boxer. DeGrazia was interviewed in 1989 and denied killing anyone, of course. Failed to turn up for a scheduled lie detector test. A sex worker named Margaret Medeiros gave some damning testimony in front of a special grand jury. She said that a man named Tony lunged to her throat and tried to snap her neck. Allegedly, he told Medeiros he was going to, quote, do to her like he had done to all the other bitches. DeGrazia was charged. Now, this is not connected to the 11 women. He was charged with four counts of rape, six counts of assault and battery, and one, account, and one count of assault with intent to rape. So, again, these charges stem from attacks on sex workers that occurred during the same time that the 11 victims were murdered, gone missing. DeGrazia took his own life in 1991, again, leaving unanswered questions. So that guy kind of sounded good for it, too. There were other suspects, suspects who came up. Unfortunately, police did not have the technology then, and DNA testing was still new. No cell phones. Very rare to have CCTV footage. This was uh, before the days of widespread automatic electronic access to fingerprint records. The computerized automated fingerprint identification system known as APHIS was only introduced two years earlier in Massachusetts. Only a handful of local departments across the state were entering new fingerprints into it, and the process was quite lengthy. With crime scene images of fingerprints enlarged five times before a technician had to trace the image by hand. The case went cold, sadly, but it has not been forgotten. There were 11 victims of this killer, yet the case, as I said, did not get the attention that, say, a case such as the Long Island serial killer has. Interestingly, Lisk 
list victims started appearing just a few years after the last victims were discovered in New Bedford. Lisk's victims were dumped on beaches not far from major roadways, about four hours south of the Massachusetts crime scenes. Now, am I saying it's connected? I don't know. Is there a connection? Not sure. But isn't it horrifying to think it could be the same person or that there were actually two active serial killers within that close proximity to each other at that same time? All right. So sadly, um, as I said, no one has ever been charged, uh, convicted with, with these crimes. Um, and again, I think you can look at this as another instance of women who were vulnerable, um, you know, taking advantage of the fact that these were victims that were engaging in high risk behavior, also taking advantage of the fact that they were known to perhaps, you know, some, sometimes do things that, you know, put them at risk or, um, not communicate as, as consistently with family members. Um, when I was looking, many of these women, you know, were, there was one in particular who had gotten married and was very happy and, and was pretty much just living a kind of normal, you know, family life with her husband and her children and then, and then went down the wrong path and got addicted to drugs. So it's important to remember that, you know, these were people who, there were people, <laughs> you know, there were people with lives and families who loved them um, and not simply statistics. So um, when I saw this, not only did it catch my attention because I live relatively close to that area, I just, it's another case where nobody was brought to justice. And, and I'm sure there, there are still people who, um, who are alive and uh, missing those people. So I think it's really important to, to keep those stories alive. I'm actually very interested in looking into that book and it's called Shallow Graves. And um, so that might be something on my, on my agenda in the near future. So again, if you uh, haven't already done so, go ahead and like us on Facebook, go ahead and follow us on Instagram, send us an email, 31nightsofscaryshit at gmail.com. Even if you just want to say hi, I like to get emails, like to hear from, from listeners. And uh, again, I want to, I want to reiterate that I'm doing my best to get as many episodes out as possible in October. Can't guarantee that they're going to come out every single day, but I really am dedicated to putting out as much as I possibly can. But until we meet again, friends, stay spooky.